Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And it's my, my pleasure to be with you this morning uh, to, to continue our series in the Gospel of Luke, which we've been doing really for about a year now. But this fall, what we've done is every month of the fall, we've taken a different theme from Luke's Gospel. So instead of working our way chronologically through, we've taken time out of that to do some thematic work here. Because one of the things that Luke has a lot to say about uh, is he has a lot to say about prayer. And so we're taking all of the month of November and we're talking about uh, that and looking at some of the passages in Luke's Gospel that, that have some teaching in it about prayer. And, and this passage this morning in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, and then, uh, which, which is a familiar passage of Mary and Martha, sisters who receive Jesus into their home, but they approach him in two very different ways. And then right out of that into chapter 11 comes a big chunk of teaching on prayer. So this passage that's very, very famous and very familiar about Mary and Martha is really a passage about prayer. And we know that because of the way that it's connected to the teaching on prayer in Luke chapter 11. So if you'd follow with me, we're going to read. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Or you can take out a Bible and follow along with us there as well. So let's read beginning in Luke 10 verse, verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village... And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. This is God's word. Uh, Three things that I want us to see from this passage very quickly, and they're the three points of the outline uh, that that I've given to you that's on the other side of the the insert that we just read from. The first thing is, is that we see from this text, the main teaching of the text, that is what God wants from us. It's a very clear teaching of what it is that God desires and hopes and expects from us. In light of that, we also see what it looks like to serve him, very specific way Uh, Given the one necessary thing that he longs for from us, there's a very specific way that we then go about our lives in serving him. And then the third thing is is we want to see the role of prayer in that unique way of serving him. And so those are the three three points of of the the outline and the three kind of talking points that we'll uh, go through together this morning as we work through this this sermon, okay? So the first thing is, is we see uh, that there's a very clear teaching of, of the thing that what God wants from us, the one necessary thing. Okay, the text is a contrast between Martha and Mary and their two very different approaches to serving Jesus. And the first thing we learn uh, is, is this, what, what God wants from us. He says, 
Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. So what is this one necessary thing? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, it's the question that we should spend time talking about this morning anyway. What is this one necessary thing? Martha assumes wrongly that when Jesus comes over for dinner, of course, you get busy in the kitchen. Mary has another intuition about him that is correct. That is that when Jesus comes over for dinner, the appropriate thing to do, the right thing to do, is that you stop what you're doing, you sit down at your feet, and you simply enjoy him. Now that should make sense to us, given uh, our, our knowledge, most of us anyway, of, of the catechism question that asks, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is our life really supposed to be about? And the answer to the question is not that the chief end of man is that we do a lot of stuff to serve him, that we work hard and tirelessly for the sake of his kingdom. The chief end of man is to glorify God and do what? Enjoy him. So we've been made to enjoy him. And this is, this is what Mary rightly intuits that Martha misses. And the reason this is the case is because of what God is like in his essence. And the best way I know to explain that to you is to use a, a quote from a, you know, a pastor and theologian here in America, John Piper, who has a certain amount of notoriety. And he has written, I'm going to kind of give you a lengthy paragraph here of, of one of the things that he says that I think is really, really helpful, a, a metaphor that he uses to really describe uh, the, the essence of God when he says that God is a mountain spring. He's not a watering trough. And here's the way, here's the way Piper puts this. He says, A mountain spring is self-replenishing. It constantly overflows and supplies others. But a watering trough needs to be filled with a pump or a bucket brigade. So, if you want to glorify the worth of a watering trough, you work hard to keep it full and useful. But if you want to glorify the worth of a mountain spring, you do one thing. You drink. So the way to please God is to come to him to get and not to give, to drink, and not to water. He, and this is, this is his famous line, he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is the kind of God who will be pleased with the one thing, the one necessary thing, the one thing that I have to offer, and that is my need. He delights, not when we offer him our strength, but when we wait for his. For he is the kind of God who delights most deeply Not in making demands, but in meeting needs. I don't know about you, but that is an amazing paragraph. It was a life-changing paragraph for me as I read it the first time. Because it says, "What what is the one thing that God is most pleased with? Not our work for him, but our need of him. And that is life rearranging in its scope. And Mary, see, Mary has gotten this, I think, here. And, and what Mary becomes for us in this text is she's a picture of faith. If, that, if, the, if the essence of God is that he is a mountain spring ever overflowing in generosity and love towards other people, then the essence of Christianity isn't our working for God as much as it is our resting in Christ. The essence of what it means to be a Christian, what makes somebody a person, you know, a person of the Christian faith is not they're working for God, but that they've come to rest in Christ. Mary was working right alongside of Martha. We're, we're, I think we're to assume that from the text. She's working with her sister, getting ready for Jesus' arrival. But when he comes in the door, 
something happens. Martha goes right on working. Mary, however, stops. And that stopping, that, that, that little thing right there, that sitting down at Jesus' feet, that's the picture of faith. Because you see, for too many people, what characterizes their spirituality, the way they express their belief in God or their faith in, in, in you know, Christian faith is, 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 is they're, they're the, thing, excuse me, the things they're doing for God. When you ask them about their faith, when they sing about their faith, all of the emphasis seems to go on the long list of things that, that they're getting done, that they're doing you know, because they love him. Christianity says that's wrong. You're, you're not a Christian until you stop working and you fall at Jesus' feet. You're not a Christian because of the strength of your commitment to him or the strength of your love for him. What makes you a Christian is the strength of his commitment to you and his love for you. And so the only way to become a Christian is to stop working, to fall at Jesus' feet because God is a mountain spring. He's not a watering trough. So the one necessary thing you need in all of life, to become a Christian and to live your life as a Christian, the one necessary thing is need. All you need is need. All the work has already been done, right? Isn't that the message of Christianity? Jesus proclaims, yells from the cross, it is finished. All the work has been done. Lay your deadly doing down and sit at his feet. That's the message. Um, it's, it's something that every single person, really, in one fashion or another, has to learn throughout their life. Even the great saints of the Bible had to learn. King David, for example, in the Old Testament... Uh, stories in First and Second Samuel, one of the most prominent figures there in those you know, Old Testament um, books and passages. King David, when he had finally received, uh, you know, he'd finally gotten rest over his enemies, begun to settle into his capital city there in Jerusalem. Everything began to go well. He was starting to fill the royal treasury with his treasurers. There were no more enemies to fight. Everything was going great, as was the custom in that day of the other kings, of the other peoples and their gods. King David decided to do what, what was normal uh, in that day and time. In, in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, when a king experienced this kind of deliverance from his enemies and, and being, being settled in his capital city and the building of his palace, the first thing that he would do would be to build a house or to build a palace for his god to be right next, you know, right alongside of his palace as a way of saying to whatever god it was that he served, you've been good to me, you've blessed me, you've provided me with, you know, with victory over my enemies, you've rewarded me with these treasures, and therefore I'm going to do something to honor you, because if I honor you, then, then you'll continue to do all of these things for me. So it's like this nice little political arrangement between the king. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You know, he, he really was doing good things for his God so that his God would continue to bless him and serve him and, and extend his reign. And King David has the same impulse, and he comes to Nathan, the prophet there in Second Samuel 7, and he says, I want to build a house for the Lord. I am living in a house of cedar. The Lord is living in a tent. That doesn't seem right. I want to build the Lord a house. And Nathan, the prophet, because no pastor has ever refused uh, somebody wanting to fund a building campaign, you know, said, that sounds like a great idea to me. And David begins to make plans to build. And yet in the middle of all of his planning, the Lord steps into the middle of the, of the story, into the middle of the narrative and says, David, wait a second. Let's talk for just a minute. You don't quite understand yet how this is working. David, do you remember you were a shepherd tending your father's sheep and I took you from being a shepherd and I made you the king of my people. David, you were weak and a nobody and nobody even knew your name. And I 
did all of these marvelous things for you. David, you know, I gave you victory over your enemies, and I have done this, and I have done this. And would you now, at the end of all of my doing for you, presume, uh, presume to think that the way this relationship works is that you do for me? He says, I'm not like the other gods. That may be how the other gods and the other kings of the other peoples work, but that's not how I am. I'm different, and our relationship is going to be different, David. And then it kind of climaxes there in Second Samuel 7, and the Lord says, David, you're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. Because I'm a God of grace. And that's how this is going to work. You see, David, even David, had to, had to learn this one necessary thing that what pleases God, what he delights in, what he loves more than anything else is not that we would give him our strength, that we would do mighty deeds in his name. Of course we're called to do that, but first we must learn that the thing above all things that we give him is our need. Lay your deadly doing down and sit at his feet. Know that you don't build for him, he builds for you. That's, that's the story, that's the lesson the story's teaching us. That God loves it most when we bring him our need. That he doesn't want our strength, he wants us to wait upon his. And that that's the way to glorify him. And, and if you're a Christian, then that changes your fundamental approach to all of life. And that's really what we see here in the contrast between Mary and Martha. Okay, It's not so much that they differ temperamentally. Nor is the text really saying that a contemplative way of life is the best kind of life. I mean, I, I, I wish that was what the teaching of the text was. I wish this meant if you really love Jesus, you just with, you know, you, you withdraw to the desert. Because it, some of you would think, yeah, I think, yeah, let's go. When, when's the bus leaving? I'm, I'm ready. You know? I'm signing up for that. But that's not, what, that's not what it's teaching. The text is not saying that we should all be more people-oriented like Mary and less task-oriented like Martha. Nor is the text saying that busyness and working hard is sinful. The teaching instead is that once you come to terms with the one necessary thing, once you understand the way a relationship with God works, it begins to shape everything else in your life. And so the more you grow spiritually, your life begins to look more like Mary here in this scene and less like Martha. And that doesn't mean less busyness, but the same busyness, just with a different internal frame. A busy life in a busy world, but with a less busy heart. Can I say that again? A busy life. In a busy world, just with a less busy heart. And that that is the mark of a person who has had a genuine experience of God's grace. So the first thing I want to do is this. Uh, and I, w- I need to do it for myself. But I, I want to try to redeem busyness for us. I feel like that's part of what we have to do. It's a little backwards way of approaching this text. Uh, and the reason I want to do it is because I hardly have a conversation with somebody that doesn't start with, you know, I pick up my phone. Hello? Hey, I know you're busy. Or I'm sitting in my office. Somebody opens the door. I know you're busy. It's kind of the leading, it's kind of the leading thing. You know, I, when somebody asks me how I'm doing, nine times out of ten, the first words out of my mouth are, well, you know, I'm busy, busy, busy. Right? How about you? Yeah, busy, busy. Uh, I'm busy. And I give the impression of busyness. It radiates off me. But what you don't know is I feel really guilty about that. And probably the reason is because Eugene Peterson Uh, who wrote the message, translation of the Bible, more than any other person is responsible for um, my imagination, the picture in my imagination of what a pastor should be. And he says uh, that the description, busy pastor, is an abomination. That pastors should never be busy. And that if a pastor is busy, it's for one of two reasons. Either he's vain or 
he's lazy, and it's always stuck with me. It's always stuck with me and really kind of shaped and formed me. So when people start off an email or a conversation with, I know you're busy, what they don't know is it sends a wave of condemnation crashing over me at the very outset. I mean, it's just like, hi, welcome, you know, feel really bad about yourself now. And, and what I love, I told the first service, what I really love is my, it, it's, it's fun to have, hey, hey, I know you're busy, but if you'd let me, I'd really like to make your life even more busy than it already is. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of, that, you know, so it's just kind of a no-win situation sometimes. Uh, but but here's where, my, here's where I, I find some comfort is to know that you're busy too, and that makes me feel a little better about myself, that we're a busy church, we're a busy society. And I think for us in particular in this church, it comes with affluence and success. So scheduling meetings that everybody can be at is the hardest part of my job and the least favorite part of my job. And I want to tell us, you know, it's a, it's, it can be a real barrier to community. You don't typically love people well if you're moving really fast. And most of us have very little margin in our lives, which means that the urgent, the urgent typically takes priority over the most important things. And it's hard to manage a, a, a volunteer organization uh, like this with people who have such little margin. So it's a real threat. I want to say it's a real threat to the success of our mission. Okay? We have to be careful about not letting our busyness creep in like that. But I'm having to repent of my attitude about busyness a little bit these days and admit that it's possible, though it's really hard for me Really hard for me to imagine, but it's possible that Eugene Peterson could be wrong about this. And the reason I say that is because the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians who were struggling with kind of with being idle and not really, you know, not really doing the things they should have been doing in light of the Lord's coming, he writes to them. And we read this a few weeks ago, and it just really stuck with me. He says, just very simply, be busy at work. So, busyness is not necessarily sinful. It might even be an important part of, ima- of imaging God. I mean, do you remember what Jesus said about the Father and about himself in our reading in John, again in our community Bible reading recently, while he was being interrogated by the religious leaders about he keeps healing people on the Sabbath, and they're really upset about this because, of course, you're not supposed to be doing that on the Sabbath. You're, you're supposed to be resting on the Sabbath. And his response to their accusations is my father is working until now and I am working which we could translate my dad and I are always working we're always working all the time and so I think there is such a thing as holy busyness and Paul Miller in his book on prayer which I would recommend to you made a statement uh, that in reading reading it changed my life just these few little words, when I read it, it really, it really did. It really did radically change my life. He just says this. He says, Jesus was busy. All of the gospel writers noticed his busyness. And if he lived today, his cell phone would be ringing constantly. And here's what he says. He says, if we, if we genuinely love people and have the power to help, then we're going to be busy. If you genuinely love people, if, you, if you're compassionate, in your constitution towards people, and you truly do have the power to help people, then you're going to be busy. And so as Jesus went from town to town during the years of his earthly ministry, and the crowds of people followed him and were told, pressed in on him so that he could barely move around and find time to break for ministry. I mean, you know, it was like, um, well, it was like Bourbon Street on New Year's Eve every day of the week in Jesus' ministry. 
And there's a place in the Gospels where we're even told it was so busy, the schedule was so hectic, they couldn't even find time to take a break to get a bite to eat. That was what his life was like. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus never met a person that he didn't feel compassion towards. Okay, not really my experience. Right? And I know some of you, and I, so I, I'm thinking it's probably true of you too. But Jesus never met a person he didn't feel compassion towards. And more profoundly than I've ever felt compassion about anyone. And he never met a person that he did not have the resources to help. So he was busy. And if you become like him, and if you begin to live with his heart towards people, and as he, as he promises to do, gives you spiritual gifts and material and spiritual resources that are a help to other people, you're going to be busy. So Paul says, be busy at work. But then he goes on to say there to the Thessalonians, because this was really their trouble, he says, but not busy bodies. And that word refers to the inner frame of your life, of your heart. So the issue for our spiritual lives is not, and our spiritual growth is not to figure out how to have a less busy life, but how to live our busy lives in a busy world with a less busy heart. To be busy for the right reasons, to be busy doing the right things, but to be quiet on the inside. And that's what really what the story is about. There are two kinds of busyness, a Martha kind of busyness and a Mary kind of busyness. And one is characteristic of a life not anchored to Christ properly and his work, and one that is. And so that's what we want to look at for a few minutes here, okay? Let's look at Martha first, because we, you know, most of us probably identify with her the most. Martha's life is busy because she has a busy heart. That's the reason she's so busy, and that's the problem. She has a busy heart. Now you say, how do you know that? Well, it's here in the text. Look at how Jesus nails her, verse 42. He sees right into her inner life. Martha, Martha, and by the way, that that double Martha, Martha there, that's that's a... that's a way of showing compassion to her. It's a gentle, it's a gentle expression to call her name twice like that. Martha, Martha. Jesus says compassionately towards her. You are anxious and troubled about many things. So Martha's busy because she's anxious. She's revved up on the inside. And the word there means turbulence. It's interesting. And turbulence is a crashing, you know, we know this, is a crashing together of different air currents that creates instability in the atmosphere so if you're in an airplane and you are unfortunate enough to hit a patch of turbulence the plane shakes violently or you lose altitude very quickly and it's a perfect description of Martha's inner life she's we're told anxious she's you know troubled she's distracted there's many things Mary has found the one thing and she you know the the good thing Martha has all of these different desires and priorities in, in scheduling conflicts and whatnot, and they keep crashing into one another, and the result is they create this internal emotional turbulence. The Son of God is coming over for dinner. Right? What do you fix? Right? What's the menu? I mean, you know, I, can you even imagine that? And Martha, in light of this pressure she's under, the external pressures of her life, she feels this anxiety. But her real trouble is she has a stormy heart. She's trying to keep up with many things, not the one thing. And as a result, she's anxious, she's distracted. We're told there she's troubled. And that means she's overwhelmed. The water, you know, the, her head, she's sinking under, under the waves. The waves are crashing over her boat. The boat is beginning to sink. She's 
going down and she feels it. And if you, you know, I know you've been in a similar situation where you just know, I am, I'm taking on water. I can't bail fast enough. This thing's about to sink and I'm going to be in really big trouble. So she feels this thing. And what's fascinating is, is she, she feels anxiety. She becomes overwhelmed like this. And what happens in her life, it's fascinating. It makes her aggressive. She's very aggressive. Look there in verse 40. The text says, when Jesus came into the house, she went up to him. Which, you know, when you read that, seems harmless enough, doesn't it? But the word there means she assaulted him. That's that's what it means. That red-faced voice raised, all of her inner emotional disquiet unleashes itself on Jesus. And so her anxiety becomes aggression. And that is a sign of a busy heart. And I can't tell you how many times uh, in a rush to get out the door or because I'm worked up emotionally on the inside, we're late somewhere or there's some deadline or there's pressure, whatever it might be. And all, I just, I typically tend to, you know, like, like, like anybody else, all of that inside, there'll be moments where I'll just absolutely explode. And it's usually I explode at my kids. Let's go, you know, what are we doing? Every morning at 6.55 in the morning trying to get out the door to make sure nobody's late to school or whatever it might be. And what I love is my... My, a couple of my kids have gotten old enough now, and this has been really good for me. My, I have two boys, and they're 15 and 13, and now they're at the age where when I start to act this way, this is one of the things they'll do. They'll look at me and say, why are you yelling at me? Right? Why are you yelling at us? We know we're coming as fast as we can, right? Why are you yelling at us? And whenever they do that, I, you know, it really catches me, and I realize, why, why am I yelling? Like, I don't know why I'm yelling. And the reason I'm yelling, why am I yelling? I'm yelling because on the inside... I feel all this pressure, and eventually the pressure becomes so great that when there's pressure and the pressure builds up, what happens? There's an explosion. And that explosion is, is aggression. It's my will. And Martha, Martha bosses people around. That's how she gets things done. And for her, that's the most important thing, getting things done. And so you see, she's anxious. She's overwhelmed. It's interesting. Her... her, her noisy heart, her unsettled, anxious heart makes her really aggressive. She, 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 she deals with people in raised voices and angry faces. These are all warning signs on the dashboard of your life that something's, you know, something's wrong under the hood. So we see all this. Martha's internally anxious, troubled, leads to aggression. And there's another thing. She's also full of self-importance. Look at the way she says it to Jesus here in verse 40. I love it. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? I'm all alone. I'm the only one left. Everybody else has left me here. Oh, man, I, listen, I know, I know this one. I, I came home from um, work a few weeks ago to take, my, to take my grandmother, who lives with us, to a doctor's appointment. And after the appointment, we went to get some lunch, and I got her back home and settled her in. And, you know, and she... she she um, she doesn't want to be a burden to us, and I think you know it's hard to not for her not feel that way. And so she's very generous in all different ways. And so I was, she, she I think she realized, um, you know, I'd taken some time out of my schedule and whatnot, and I probably was in a rush and giving off right. I give off the sense of I'm, I need to be somewhere else, and I'm in a hurry and all this kind of thing. And so she just said, you know what? Thank you so much. You're so good to me. She said, you're the only one. You're the only one who takes care of me. <laughs> and oh. I'm the only one. 
Has anybody, have you ever experienced anything like that? Mom, you're the only one that loves me. Right? Dad, you're the only one that does, you know, whatever it might be. And I, and I, and I, you know, the, and the reality is she was not even being serious. She was, she was being, I think she caught on that I, I was thinking a little too, you know, because she has a lot of intuition in that regard. She was just trying to express her gratitude. And the truth is that Ashley does a whole lot more uh, than I do in our house on a day-to-day basis. And there's lots of other people involved. But the point is, if you could have seen into my heart of what my heart, you know, what I felt, how it made me feel, how it lifted me emotionally, because it feels good, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel good when everybody else has failed, when everybody else has gone home, when everybody else is slacking off, but not me? makes you feel superior to others, and that can be a powerful motivation for staying busy. And I have to confess I'm far more motivated by this than I would like to admit. But Tim Kreider, who writes for the New York Times, wrote an article called The Busy Trap. And in the article he wrote, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're busy, completely booked, in demand every hour. And so busyness can make you feel important, and if you need to feel important, then it will be a powerful motivator in your life. And it's a part of my story and my brokenness um, that I tend to I tend to overcommit. I tend to say yes. I love I love the feeling of being the only one. Everybody else, I listen. I I'm here. Nobody else is here. I'm here. And it's really it sounds virtuous at first, doesn't it? And so I tend to. I tend to be in relationships where I'm over, over-functioning in roles and, and, and things like that. One of, the, one of the telltale signs in my life is I'm a part of a few things that I'm not in charge of. So the, little league, you know, little league, or the soccer, youth soccer league calls and says your daughter's on the team, but there's no coach for the team. Well, can't somebody else? On, on, no, all the parents have said, okay, sign me up. As if spending a, a large amount of time with 10 eight-year-old girls is like what I'm you know, excited about. Because I have one, and she wears me out. Ten. Whew. But hey, I'm in. I'll, nobody else. I, I will volunteer to do what no one else dares to do. And, and I say it that way because that really is part of what's going on in my heart. And what I'm, lear- what I'm learning is, is this, this, it feels virtuous. And it, and it, you know, and it, and it seems like you're being responsible and all those kinds of things. But it can be very selfish and it can be and it can be motivated by some really ugly things and the problem is is it leaves you exhausted and worn out and and not able to do the things you've really been called to do and the other thing it does is what it does here in martha is this this feeling of self-importance this pride that's what it really is this pride of nobody else will do it i'll do it it can quickly sour into self-pity and it happens to me all the time and it happens to martha here she's full of self-pity she plays the victim card lord look what she says lord do you not care? What she means is I'm not getting the credit that I deserve. I'm doing all of this hard work and nobody is paying any attention. Nobody's saying thank you. Which means, of course, that's, that was the reason that she was doing it to begin with. Martha is trying to make an impression. That's why she's so busy. She wants people to notice her and to applaud her. That's why I say yes to too many things in my life. And then they don't. What's worse, Jesus doesn't hear Martha, Martha comes to him with all of this aggression because she wants him to declare that her way of doing things is right and Mary's way of doing things is wrong and he doesn't, in fact, 
It's the opposite, isn't it? He says Mary has chosen the good portion. It's interesting that phrase means the right meal. You know, it's a play there on what's happening in the text. This is the right meal, not the one that you're, you're trying so desperately to, to, to do, Martha. And then she comes and says, Lord. It just, it just causes a breakdown. It causes a, 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 an emotional meltdown in her life. And she's left to say, Lord, do you not care? Which is an axiom of unbelief. It means that she has been become disconnected from a sense of Jesus' love for her and his care for her. And that's her real problem, that she doesn't know that he loves her. She doesn't feel his care. She's, she's not busy because of his love. Out of the overflow of being loved by him, she's busy trying to get love from him, trying to get him and everybody else to pay attention to her and to notice her because she doesn't know that she already has his love. Now contrast this with Mary. Mary is busy too. She's not lazy. Martha says, Lord, don't you care that she's left me to serve alone? Which, of course, means that she had been there working alongside of Martha. Mary's busy, but she lives a busy life with a less busy heart. She has the same work ethic as her sister, but a different internal frame, a different set of priorities and a point of reference. And that's what she's being committed for. Because whereas Martha is distracted and anxious, Mary is settled and single-minded. Everything is in the right order. In her life, the urgent, the urgent doesn't overshadow the importance, right? I mean, she's under a major deadline. The son of God is coming over for dinner. That is a big time deadline. You know, and yet, and yet she's able to put aside the urgent to take up what is important. And that's a huge, huge issue of self-control. All of the different priorities and commitments in Martha's life keep crashing into one another. But Mary, Mary is able to stay focused on the one Necessary, necessary thing. And so she's like the calm in the midst of the storm, sitting at Jesus' feet while Mary continues to rush around. Or while Martha continues to rush around. So she's settled and single-minded. Look there, she also knows when to quit. She's been working, but she knows that when Jesus shows up, it's time to sit down and to listen. Which again means everything's in the right order in her life. She's She's, she's got everything in the right place. She's not taking herself too seriously like I do, like Martha does. Her identity is not bound up in the things that she's doing. Hard work and busyness are godlike traits, but the reality is even God rested. And so the rhythm of God's life is work and rest. And so one of the things that Ashley and I have been really kicking around with one another is, is we really are, are noticing a really difficult Time, we have a very difficult time entering into these periods of rest. We don't Sabbath well, and it's, a, and it's, a, it's an indicator that something's really broken in us. That there's a real dysfunction in us. Because that, that command to Sabbath, one day every seven, or whatever it might be, Marva Don says that Sabbath means you intentionally stop trying to be God. The story's told of Martin Luther upon seeing his associate, Philip Melanchthon, full of worry, just simply walked up to him and said, let Philip cease to rule the world. Just let him cease to rule the world. And so Mary, Mary knows when to quit, and that's a really powerful spiritual practice in, in her life. But then the last thing that I think you see here is that she's also intimate with Jesus, and that makes her very bold. It makes her very bold. The commentators all make a big deal out of her sitting at his feet. She's in the posture of a disciple, which is startling, given that rabbis in Jesus' day didn't take women as disciples. Jesus did. 
And Mary is undoubtedly an insider here. Jesus comes in the door. She takes her place at his feet. There's no hint of her being timid or that she remains around the edge, unsure of where she fits in, given cultural norms or customs or even, you know, any, any, any sense of not knowing what Jesus expects from her. She's right at home, right in the middle of all his disciples, right on the front row, center stage for him to, for him to work and minister to. In fact, in John 12... After their brother Lazarus is raised from the dead, we're told that there's another gathering at Martha's home. And Martha, it's just, it's inter- we read this last week, it's just so marvelous that in, Mar- in John 12, we're told they had, a, they had a dinner party, and then John 12 too, Martha served. <laughs> so she's at it again. There she is doing what she does, and where's Mary? And we're told there in John 12 that she is again at Jesus' feet, but this time anointing him with oil. And wiping his feet with her hair. And so this is telling us something about the kind of person that she is. The kind of faith that she has. If Martha's problem was that she's, she's busy trying to earn love. Trying to get somebody to notice her. Trying to, you know, trying to get Jesus' attention. And, want, and what she wants Jesus to look at her and kind of applaud and say well done. There's none of that in Mary. She knew that she belonged. Uh, she, there was no hesitancy. There was boldness in her. Because unlike her sister... She had come to know the magnitude of his heart for her, and that's the key. That's the key. That's the key to really dealing with busyness in life. And so let me finish by connecting this to prayer, because it's what Luke does in transitioning from chapter 10 to chapter 11. And let me say this, that becoming a Christian doesn't mean your life will be any less busy. In fact, it will probably become busier, but with the right things and for the right reasons, so that everything is in the right place. But here's the big thing that we learn from Jesus here and all over the Gospels. And it's this, there are two ways to go through life. That you can go through life doing, or you can go through life asking. You can go through life relying upon your strength to solve the problems that you come up or up, up against, or you can go through your life relying upon God's strength uh, to, to solve the problems that you find yourself up against. And the one, the doing and the asking, they're really incompatible and in that you either go in one of these two directions that most of us live our lives doing rather than asking. But Jesus is telling us that people who really start to get the gospel begins to sink into their hearts. One of the, one of the, you know, one of the outflows of that is that they begin to change and their life really, they begin to do life by asking. Now Paul Miller's written a book, as I've told you, about prayer. And one of the things that I really learned from him that has really helped me is he said, you know, we tend to, we, t- we have this kind of natural inclination to know that in the really big things in life, though, though we're all prone to kind of doing our life through doing, 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 then there's some really big things that we come up against that we know our doing is, is really no good, you know, no good at all. And then that's when we, when we revert to asking. So, you know, when, 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 when sickness or when, you know, something with one of your kids that you really have no control over, that's a really big deal. When something like that comes into your life, we have a natural inclination. We know, okay, doing's not going to do it here. I've got to go to God and ask. But Paul says uh, the mark of a person who's really been gripped by God's grace is that they take that asking, and they don't just reserve it for the really big things. They bring it in all to the little, little things in their life too. And they begin to do all of life. His book he called A Praying Life because you do all of life and all of the small little details, your strategy for managing life is no longer your doing, but God's doing, and so it's asking. 
And really, the ability to do this, the ability to live life that way, really hinges on this. Uh, the answer to this question, and it's where I want to finish. Do you live as if God is generous, or do you live as if you have to wrestle every blessing from his hand? And that's the point of Jesus' story in Luke 11, isn't it? He tells the story of a man who has an unexpected house guest, and he has a problem. He has no bread for dinner when his friend comes into town. And so he goes to another friend's house, and he asks him for three loaves of bread. But at first, his friend doesn't cooperate. He says, don't bother me. I'm already in bed. I don't want to get up. Leave me alone. And the point of Jesus' little parable there is that the father is not like that. The father is generous. If you ask, he gives. If you seek, he provides. If you knock, it doesn't matter what time of the night it is, he will answer the door. But here's the problem. See, Martha thinks Jesus is like that man. Lord, don't you care? Martha sees him as you know, she thinks of God in heaven as if, he, as if his response to her is, don't bother me. I can't be bothered by you now. Martha imagines Jesus like this man, uncaring and unsympathetic to her as her life has fallen apart. And it's how we think of him too. We live as if we must wrestle every blessing from his hand. It's easier to just do it yourself than to trust him. And Jesus is saying, if you only knew the magnitude of my heart, and the Father's heart for you, you could take a break from trying to rule the world and trust that your life is in good hands. See, in salvation, we don't give, we receive. That's the only way it works. We are passive. Jesus does all the work. We do nothing. What matters most is what he does for us, not what we do for him. And Paul Miller says prayer works the exact same way. It's a mirror of the gospel. If you don't pray, it's because that central basic gospel truth hasn't really come into the center of your life just just yet. I got the chance to lead a seminar on prayer at Redeemer New York City a year or so ago. And of course, Redeemer New York City is Tim Keller's church. It's part of the reason that we're called Redeemer because in many ways we've learned the gospel from, from that church and from their ministry. And it was great to be able to go there. My first line, we laughed about this so hard when I got back. I told Paul Miller this and he about choked on whatever he was eating. But I said my first line was, uh, I'm so happy to be here and so excited and so nervous because I learned the gospel from your church. But I've been sent here to tell you that you don't pray because you don't believe the gospel as deeply as you think you do. If you don't pray, it's because you really believe that what you do matters most, not what God does. That your plans, your organization, and your strength is what's going to win the day in your life. I, I love George Herbert. 17th, uh, a poet, English poet in the early 17th century, and he has a poem called Love. Uh, And in the poem, love has invited the narrator over for a meal, and the man is astonished at the generosity that he's being shown, and he, in in the course of the meal, he keeps trying to get up and to help serve the meal, because of course, you know, it's uncomfortable to be the recipient of so much generosity from someone else, and so he's sure that he should be the one doing the serving, and, and the climax of the, of the poem, it finally, you know, finally love comes to this, to this man and he says, listen, you must sit down and let me serve. In other words, this is the only way this works. You don't serve me. I, I must serve you. And isn't that the hardest thing in the world to do? To sit down? And yet Jesus has been very clear. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, 
Do you care? Martha asks. And it's the question every single one of us has to settle too. Lord, do you care? In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus, though he was God, took no thought for himself. He did not live selfishly towards us, but made himself nothing, became a servant, became obedient to death upon the cross. Does he care? Yes, he cares. Of course he cares. Look at him there on the cross. He's there because he cares. He's there bearing the penalty of our sins, reconciling us to the Father so that now we don't have to wonder if he cares. We don't have to slug it out on our own. We don't have to get to work looking for the solution to our problems. We don't have to wonder if the really scary things in our lives are going to work out for our good. Do you have a need? Do you have a need? Is there a big, scary monster in your life? What does Jesus tell us to do? Ask. For everyone who asks, receives. And to the one who seeks, they find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. That's the promise of this text. And so let's pray that God will give us the faith to believe it. Father, we confess to you that we are busy, and for some, some of us it's for the right reasons, but the majority of the time it's, uh, if we were honest, it's not for the right reasons. And so we do pray that you would help us as we strive after repentance and faith this morning. And even in these few moments, as we sing together to close the service, would we um, find the grace to, as, Mar- as Mary has led us, to take up the one necessary thing, to sit before you in these quiet moments here at the end, and to offer to you our need, our broken hearts, our, our fears, the, the, scary, the scary things in our lives, to say, Lord, here they are. I can't do this on my own. Would you, would you do something? Give us the strength to rightly order our lives so that even in the busyness that you call us to, we can live busy lives in a busy world with a less busy heart because that would be to your glory and to your honor, and that's what we desire, and so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Lord sends us out now into a busy world, and I think he sends us to live busy lives, but he promises to send us with less busy hearts. That's what the words of this benediction can do. So don't go. Don't go trying to work hard to earn something with him to get him or someone else to notice you. Go having your heart filled with the promise of his love and his protection and his provision for you even as he sends you. That's what these words mean. And so receive them uh, by faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.